You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today we're talking about the recent Why Christian conference held in Minneapolis. I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist moderating today's episode, and with me today are regular panelist Kristen Flippick and our podcast creator, Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, Kristen, Victoria. Hello. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for uh, new listeners. Uh, Kristen? Hi. I'm Kristen Filippic. I'm generally behind the scenes on this network, organizing the interview show Christian Humanist Profiles. Um, but this is the second time I get to join you on air. Um, I grew up in central Ohio and have been in Boston for the last 12 or 13 years, most recently working as a government lawyer. Thanks, Kristen. And Victoria? Hi, I'm Victoria Farmer. Uh, I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota, with my husband, Michael, and our two cats, uh, one of whom may make an appearance on this podcast as he will not currently remove himself from my arm. So uh, look out for that, listeners. <laughs> if you hear some purring, that's what's going on. Uh, I, for six or seven years, taught college English and literature. Now I'm working in audience development at Public Radio International. And like I said, I'm Marie Haas, one of the regular panelists on this podcast, and I'm moderating the episode today. I'm a PhD candidate at Florida State University. I'm currently trying to finish my dissertation on Renaissance poetry. Um, I was on the episode we had recently on the podcast on body theology, so I was really interested to see how that was addressed in many aspects of the Why Christian Conference, and I was really happy I got to attend the Why Christian Conference uh, with some people from my church and also uh, to see Victoria and Kristen there. Um, So, Victoria, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what this conference was or how it got started? Sure. So, Uh, The driving force or driving forces behind the creation of this conference, which um, was in its first year this year and will continue next year in, I believe, Chicago, um, are Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Bowles Weber. Um, That's one reason we did our uh, immediately previous episode on one of Nadia's books. And Nadia and Rachel wanted to put together a group of people that they felt created a broader picture of why and how people are Christians. Um, a really interesting question posted in the promotional material for the conference was, why, in the wake of centuries of corruption, hypocrisy, crusades, televangelists, and puppet ministries, do we still choose to follow Christ? So the conference kind of tried to answer that question. Um, And in hearing them talk about why they put it together and how they put it together, it seems to me that it came together in 
uh, a pretty much organic way. Uh, Rachel and Nadia called their friends. Those people called their friends. Um, and we, we ended up with a, a really interesting, really diverse group of women. Um, all the speakers were women and a vast majority of the attendees as well, though the conference's Facebook page um, made an effort to note, this is not a women's conference. It's a gallery of storytellers, a community of sinners and saints drawn together by the stubborn hope that God is in the business of making all things new. Um, And I really think the language in that statement sums up to me um, how the conference operated. It really tried to push against stereotypes of women's conferences, uh, the kinds of things we've already discussed in several of our episodes, the one on Jesus Feminist and also the one on women's Bible studies. Uh, So no best cupcake baking methods here. Um, It was theologically deep. It was honest. Uh, It was honest about things like failure and doubt and the fact that... um, A lot of us are sometimes really bad at serving God, and a lot of us um, really want to do that better sometimes or often, both of those things simultaneously. So that's sort of the the impetus behind the conference and and some of the basic themes. Thanks, Victoria. That's a lovely summary of what was behind the conference, I think. Um, Did you have anything you wanted to add about how gender equality um, was evident in other aspects of the conference or in the, the, throughout the conference? Sure. Um, and I think you, you wanted me to talk about bodies too, right? Oh, yes. Uh, this theme of body theology that we had running through the whole conference. I really liked that. Okay. So, uh, yes, both of those things were, were definitely there a lot. Lots of gender equality and inequality questions and, uh, and lots of of body theology too. So a couple of ways that I saw those things. There was a lot of discussion of, um, and I I hesitate to phrase it this way, and I'll talk about why, Um, a lot of discussion of work-life balance, um, particularly from two speakers, Mihi Kim Court and Nicole Flores, uh, both of whom are theologians married to theologians. Um, so so that an, was an interesting series of conversations. But I, I hesitate to use the word balance because uh, when Rachel Held Evans was interviewing uh, both of those women on panel, she made a point of saying um, that she hates the word balance because uh, it seems like it's an impossible standard anyway, and also because nobody ever asks men how they balance work and marriage or work and family. That's a question that's sort of really, um, really unequally posed to women. So she called it juggling and said, how do you juggle everything? Uh, me, Kim Court was the first person to answer and she just sort of blurted, uh, okay, can I be honest? I'm really bad at it. And that moment in the cathedral for me, like it was this wonderful burst of laughter and recognition from so many women in attendance. And for me, it felt like I mean, this is such a cliche, but I felt like 10 pounds lighter after she said that, like just to hear her admit that she fails at balance in this holy place that's full of other women trying to struggle and do the same thing. um, That was really wonderful for me. I did. 
Did you guys experience that moment in the same way or in a similar way? Oh, oh yeah, I loved, I loved that. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the only one to, uh, to feel that way. So there were um, discussions of, uh, of balance or juggling um, that, that talked about kind of gender inequality and the way that women are uh, sort of unfairly expected to um, do, you know, the, the second shift kind of stuff that was there. Also, there was a lot of um, implication and outright discussion of the fact that women are often socialized to be uh, quiet, sometimes too quiet, and content, sometimes too content. Lots of conversation about things like anger and doubt as they relate to faith. Um, Allison, oh, and I, I'm not remembering Allison's last name right now. Dylan Robinson. Thank you. Allison Dylan Robinson, who, if you all don't know, you should look up. Um, she's a, a trans woman pastor, and her sermon uh, on Job uh, and I, as, as many, uh, as a cradle Christian, and as many of you are cradle Christians too, I'm sure you've heard a million sermons on Job. Her sermon on Job absolutely blew me away. Uh, she talked about how uh, she basically said, yes, there are bad things that are God's fault, and that's okay, and it doesn't make God any less worthy of worship for us to acknowledge that there are bad things that God allows to happen to people, but that to choose to worship um, that God anyway is an active choice, and it's an active choice that we all make for reasons that are personal and complex. Uh, and that was really wonderful, and a way to just contextualize doubt and anger um, that I had never heard before. Um, also, there was a lot of... Um, I don't really know how to say this in an articulate way. There was a lot of spontaneous singing that, to me, felt like it wouldn't happen in another place or another context, um, there were four or five times, um, separate from like the music performance, um, where people, as a part of their speaking, just inserted um, verses of songs, and I, I felt like that really connected to this. Um, women are told to be silent. Women are told not to be too much. Um, I, I know I've mentioned this essay a million times on this podcast. Sorry, it's one of my favorites. Um, maybe we should get a Christian feminist bingo card, uh, like the Christian humanist bingo <laughs> card, and this would be one of my squares. Uh, so it made me think of Helene Sixou's The Laugh of the Medusa, where um, women are compared to liquid and, and overflowing and bursting forth. And I felt like a lot of those pieces of song... Um, for example, I think it was, uh, was it Nicole Flores who sang, um, a few bars of, of Will I from Rent, Will I Lose My Dignity, Will Someone Care? That was her, right? Yeah, it was her. Right. Yeah. Um, so all of this singing, all of this sort of spontaneous bursting, um, felt to me like a part of, um, women's voices that, that wouldn't really be allowed to happen in another place. Um, also in a, in a kind of physical, uh, bodily way. And, um, 
which I guess brings me to the body theology thing. Um, almost everybody talked about physicality in some way, in, in some connection um, to all of the sermons that I heard. Uh, the, the women of color who spoke talked about being um, unable or sometimes able to escape from the color of their skin um, and, and where it deposited them in society. Um, there are a lot of women who talked about their haircuts or their tattoos, marking them as the right or wrong kind of woman or the right or wrong kind of Christian. Um, and the biggest, uh, the biggest embodiment um, thing for me was uh, Nadia Bolsweber preached a communion sermon um, that I'm, I'm honestly still trying to process, and. One of the things that she said that was kind of at the center of the sermon is, um, because Christ is word made flesh, we as his followers are allowed to be flesh made word. And as I said, I'm still kind of trying to process that. So I thought maybe we could talk about um, how we interpreted that phrase for a minute. How did you ladies hear that? Well, for me, I guess it, really is just rooted in this uh, body theology thing, this emphasis on the incarnation that we're in the Eucharist taking part in God's body and becoming God's body to the world through our actions, through the way we interact with other people and that those actions are that the word of God that um, how we interact with each other is uh, fundamental to the gospel. That sounded so good. I don't think I have anything else to add right now. Okay. <laughs> um, did, did you have anything else uh, to add, Victoria? Um, I, I do agree with what you were saying, uh, though um, I don't think I read it exactly the same way. I did see the social justice connection, um, the idea that, you know, um, we are supposed to use this holiness that we are endowed with to, um, to push God's word outward and to, and to take it to people and that we should, um, we should do that as, as we fight um, racism and, and inequality and, and all of those things. Um, but I, I also kind of felt, and, and maybe this is just, um, maybe this is partly due to, to my own connection to my own embodiment, um, as a person with a disability, um, me and body theology have a, a deep, complex, sometimes hurtful relationship, um, because, I, I sometimes don't want to worship um, in in my own uh, my own body. What's that that old hymn um, about making your feet swift and beautiful for Jesus? Um, I, I always hated that hymn because my feet will never be swift or beautiful. Um, every time we sang that in church as a kid, I felt mocked by it. 
Um, so I, I think that I, I brought to my interpretation of that phrase a, a little bit more desire to transcend the physical, that, um, that Christ taking on the body of man um, gives us an opportunity to take on the Holy Spirit and not be as tied to our physical bodies if we don't want to be. Um, but again, I, I think that that has a lot to do with my own personal experiences. So uh, your mileage may vary, I guess. Uh, no, I think it had a lot to do. I mean, the whole, Nadia Boltzweber's whole communion sermon um, had a focus on accepting the body that you live in as, as part of, I guess, part of what you're talking about. Like, she had this whole litany of the kinds of bodies that God accepts. Um, and it was every kind of body, of course, uh, but naming specifically different kinds of bodies and I think that was moving to me and um, I think to a lot of other people too uh, I saw uh, after the conference one person uh, I think it was Austin Hartke who was a volunteer at the conference uh, saying you know I was so moved by uh, uh, by Nadia Boltzweber's inclusion of genderqueer bodies in this list of the bodies that are a part of the body of Christ, of the body of God, of the church. Um, so there's that emphasis on the bodies we live in, I guess. Yeah, I, I did notice that. I noticed that she said genderqueer bodies, and I thought that was wonderful. She also did say disabled bodies, and I wept uncontrollably. I was worried that I was shaking the pew at one point. So sorry if I actually I think a lost. lot of people were crying then. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I... That was really that was really something that I needed to hear. I think in that moment, um, and and that's something that I think stood out to me about the conference as a whole is that there was so much truth and vulnerability um, there, and I, I think it just made it so much more real and honest. Yeah, that honesty. Um... And that honesty about the pain that the church has caused is, and that the healing that you can get from that pain that the church has caused within the church <laughs> um, was a large part of the, the conference. Um, and I, I guess another aspect, unless you had anything else that you wanted to talk about gender equality or body theology, Victoria? No, I'm good. Okay, so another aspect of this focus on equality and inclusion and affirmation that um, I saw throughout the conference was this emphasis on LGBT inclusion, um, both in the conference itself and the church as a whole. And this meant uh, both the inclusion of the LGBT speakers in the presentation lineup and addressing LGBT experience and inclusion in what was said throughout the conference, both subtly and indirectly. And you could see with the selection of speakers that there was this desire for diversity, like you mentioned, Victoria, and this, there was this clear desire to actually hear LGBT voices rather than just talk about LGBT people. Um, and as we know, and what we talked about a lot of times on this, on this podcast, that kind of representation... Uh, representation in any in any form is important. Um, so that was in itself a great aspect of LGBT inclusion, even when the speakers' presentations weren't primarily dealing with 
things that might be called LGBT concerns. So, for example, uh, on the first day, uh, Jess Cast Keats' presentation was mostly about her call to do the work of love and justice. And um, on on the second day, like Victoria mentioned, Alison Dillon Robinson gave a very challenging meditation on theodicy. Um, but to have these bisexual and trans voices speaking so powerfully from the stage is, you know, in itself an argument for, an, or for inclusion. And I would say, too, that to have this space for these voices to speak about something besides the so-called LGBT issue is also an important thing. It's this reminder that, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity are really very far from being the centrally defining factor of you know, who a person is. You know, it's not all of a person's life. Um, it's not all of what they have to offer the world even though so many churches and faith traditions would seem to treat LGBT people as if this were the only important aspect of their lives. So that was good. Um, some other LGBT speakers did address LGBT experience uh, more directly, whether as an integral part of their overall message or as its, its central point. Um, in a really lovely and poetic sermon... Winnie Varghese tied her experience as a lesbian priest from an Indian family to how she sees uh, resistance and liberation at the heart of Christianity. And her, her central image was the Indian step well, this wide and deep subterranean body of water with steps worn down through the ages by women going down to the water. And uh, in her sermon, this was a symbol of spiritual life and communally going to the water of the spirit and it was connected uh, it was connected though with um, newspaper stories that she remembered reading as a child about lesbian couples in India who'd ended their lives by drowning themselves in wells when they were being forced apart by their families so even in this the symbol of spiritual community um, she, she twisted it a little, a little bit to um, include LGBT affirmation and inclusion in her overall discussion of resistance and liberation. So it's not just talking about uh, resistance like the Indian resistance to British colonization, but also uh, LGBT identity in both the secular world and the church. And another um, really powerful presentation was uh, by Rachel Murr, author of the book Unnatural on Queer Female Experience. And that even more directly addressed LGBT inclusion and experience. Her presentation was all about her personal experience with the church as a lesbian woman, about how she was taught that who she was was broken, that she had to change, about the failure of her efforts to change, and about her gradually making peace with her orientation and about, too, in this very painful and long-drawn-out process, having her role in her church limited as a result, um, how she left that church and finally uh, found family and also her wife um, in a thir the third-way church that she's now a part of. And so her story is a common story in some ways, as I think uh, it was pointed out in her introduction um, as she came on stage, but it's also always a very moving story to hear, always very powerful and important. Um, so her presentation was a big part of 
how the conference addressed LGBTI affirmation. And uh, the conference also dealt with LGBT inclusion with two breakout sessions on the first day, one titled LGBT Christians and the Church After Marriage Equality, where Rachel Held Evans moderated a panel that included Matthew Vines and Anna Gelsie Sanchez of the Reformation Project and uh, Rachel Murr and her wife, Emily Swan. Um, at the same time, there was another breakout session by uh, Jeff Chu, author of Does Jesus Really Love Me? Um, that session was titled God Has Saved Me, Lessons and Stories from Uganda's LGBT Christians. Um, so both of those showing definitely attention to LGBT people and their experiences in the world and in the church. And like with, like with the gender equality, like Victoria discussed, the, this, the treatment of LGBT inclusion at the conference was all bound up in these issues of embodiment and body theology. And like I said, the, the, the prevalence of body theology was something I really liked about the conference as a whole. And um, body theology, like uh, Nate Craddock and Diana Anderson and I talked about in episode 22 of this podcast, deals with the importance of the body in Christian faith and experience, and especially to the importance of God having a body. So it has a lot to do with the incarnation and also the Eucharist. And in the panel session following the presentations by Jess Kasky and Winnie Varghese, Nadia Boltz-Weber asked them both about body theology, um, asking, what is it in the Christian tradition that speaks to us when bodies have been othered? And Jess Kaskeet uh, pointed out about how Christianity is a very embodied religion, um, as when a woman came to Jesus weeping and um, he identified her as the faithful, even in her female body and in her otherness. Uh, and in her own presentation, Jess Kaskeet had at one point connected her own sort of growing acceptance and comfort in having a body and having, she said, a beautiful bisexual body um, with her growing in her own faith. And Winnie Varghese also, uh, in response to Nadia Boltzweber, talked about how her Episcopalian tradition was all about the other. Um, to her is the theology of the other. And she highlighted not just God having a body, but the means by which that body came into the world, which is uh, very interesting. She said in this lovely quote, God is born of a woman who was insignificant in her time, and that is our song. Uh, so there's the importance of Mary and giving birth to God's body in the world, um, to body theology as well. And in her own presentation, Varghese um, talked about female bodies and female embodiment in connection with this image of wells and resistance. She talked about how the lovers who drowned themselves were giving their bodies to the earth as itself a kind of act of resistance. And it really seemed like in the conference as a whole, everything kept coming back to this idea of embodied experience. From Curlin Richter talking about the sacraments as sort of getting God under your fingernails and saying... I'm a Christian because having a body wasn't always good news to me, but when I met good news who had a body, I was hooked to um, Austin Channing Brown in this powerful presentation, uh, drawing a stirring parallel between 
suffering and oppressed brown bodies and the suffering and oppression uh, Jesus went through in his body. Um, she says, a body rejected by the world. Um, or to Rachel Murr, telling the story of how she grew to accept her own othered body with its othered sexuality. Um, so the embodied experience of LGBT people was just sort of one important strand in the conference's overall concern with embodiment as this Christian experience is fundamental to Christian theology. Um, which was one reason why that final session of the conference of the conference um, with the Eucharist following uh, Nadia Boltz Weber's sermon was, was so moving. Everything was pointing back to God's body, uh, the church's body, our bodies. All of that connected in this communal partaking of the body of Christ broken for each of us. And the way the Eucharist was served too, um, with I think it was Winnie Varghese breaking the bread and then with LGBT. LGBT speakers and panelists among those who were serving the bread and wine to the congregation um, was also aligned with LGBT inclusion in a way. Um, because like, if you think about how a, a couple years ago, Rachel Held Evans got flack from some people for serving communion to LGBT people, um, how much more affirming and, and inclusive that here we have LGBT people among those serving communion um, just sort of showing that we really are all, all the body of Christ together. So that was another sort of aspect of both the emphasis on equality and inclusion that we had in the conference um, and its connection to body theology. Another, another way was um, how the conference dealt with issues of race and racism, which I think uh, Kristen will tell us a little bit about. Yes, actually, I was focusing a lot on Winnie Varghese's talk, too. Uh, as she's now an Episcopal priest, uh, but, but she grew up as a child of Indian immigrants who've been part of the Martoma Christian Church in India for, for centuries now. Um, and one bit that I particularly appreciated was that when she was a baby, um, her parents and a handful of other new parents in their community of, of Indian immigrants brought a priest over from India to baptize these, their new children because no American would do. Uh, this is a very, very old Christian church. Um, there are stories about all of Jesus' 12 disciples uh, spreading to various parts of the world in the first century. And the stories about the Apostle Thomas have him going to India and evangelizing there. And so this, this tradition traces its origin literally back to the time of the apostles. Um, so uh, she was saying that, that the assignment here is to talk about why I am a Christian. And in a very literal sense, I'm Christian because I'm part of a family that has been part of the Martoma church, uh, stretching back for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this is my tradition and this is my heritage and I'm part of that. Also, interestingly, the area of India where the Martoma Church um, has its strongest roots, Kerala province, um, also developed some very, very strong matriarchal traditions, which are very unusual among, among Indian cultures. Um, and while European Christians are, are very used to having been the dominant culture in, in their area, 
the Christian churches in India have always been a minority. And, and she talked a lot about defiance, um, that, ha- that since they were always a very small minority, they always needed to uh, be very, very assertive about their own identity uh, in, in ways that, that uh, Christians in some other parts of the world simply didn't have to do out, um, after the early years. This came in really handy centuries later when European missionaries came to India and they were t- um, typically from Protestant traditions, although there were some Catholics too, and they found an established church there already, but a very different sort of church with different cultures and different perspectives. Uh, for example, the Indian Christians of the Martoma Church would be gathering and chanting prayers to Mary, much to the horror of the Protestant missionaries who came to establish good European-style Protestant Christian churches. Um, and the Indian Christians were undisturbed by the missionaries, and they just kept on with their own traditions, worshipping in their own way. Um, and just that, that heritage of, of always needing to assert who you are and getting very used to that, um, whether we're talking about being... Uh, Christians in in a part of the world that didn't have very many, whether we're talking about a culture that's developed uh, a much stronger role for women, uh, or whether we're talking about being the wrong sort of Christians in, in the eyes of the missionaries who had come over from Europe. Uh, this is just a, a heritage that was built into their bones over the years, over the centuries, really. Um, and we've already mentioned Mihi Kim Court a little bit. Uh, she was another child of immigrants. Her family was India. Uh, she grew up in a Presbyterian church that was largely composed of and for other Korean immigrant families. And like many immigrant churches, they didn't have their own building, um, but they rented space from a largely Caucasian, another Presbyterian co- congregation. And one thing that really struck me was she was talking about how the Korean congregation would come together every morning for morning prayer. Um, I can't, I can't quite imagine a congregation meeting that often, uh, but they did. And she was saying that her, her parents at least were really there at the beginning of every day. And I was really struck by this idea that, that this community came together every single morning, grounding themselves in God and in each other. And in her adult life, she's now an ordained Presbyterian minister and has served in a variety of contexts, um, not particularly serving Korean congregations. Um, although right now she, she has three small children, so her ministry in the season of life is significantly with her family while her husband serves more, um, serves more outside. Um, and, and she was talking about navigating that process that is so common among children of immigrants of figuring out how to maintain their own identity and their own heritage while also integrating more into the wider culture in, in, uh, deeper ways than often their parents had. And the third one that particularly struck me in terms of anti-racism issues was Austin Brown. 
And uh, she has been particularly involved in racial reconciliation in a variety of contexts. Um, she's an African-American person herself. And most recently, she's been serving as a resident director and a multicultural liaison at Calvin College in Michigan. Uh, she talked a lot about um, the Black Lives Matter movement and how black bodies in particular have been broken and abused and exploited in a variety of ways and connected that to Jesus' passion, how his body was beaten and abused and broken and the sufferings of African-American people throughout the centuries and continuing now are not somehow separated from God, but God incarnate joins in the sufferings of, of those African, American bodies through the suffering of his own body. So th those are the ones that particularly uh, jumped out to me in terms of anti-racism issues. Oh, thanks, Kristen. I think uh, that those are all those were all really good presentations. And what you mentioned about uh, Winnie Varghese's emphasis on resistance as a Christian principle is something that could be sort of applied to all of those presentations and to the idea of you know, working against racism as this part of the gospel, as part of what Christianity is or should be um, overall. So, uh, yeah, those, that's a, a good summary. Um, and now I think we're, we're all going to give our own sort of responses to the founding question of this conference, why Christian? But before that, there was just one thing I wanted to mention that um, there, as probably many of our listeners know, um, there was kind of an online protest and there was actually a, some people present outside of St. Mark's as well while the conference was going on. And this was due to a controversy surrounding the alleged uh, spousal abuse by Tony Jones, who is a well-known leader in the emerging church movement and one of the co-owners of the company that had originally been commissioned to plan the conference. Uh, some thought that Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Boltz-Weber hadn't responded appropriately or fast enough when these allegations of abuse were made. And for my part, I have to admit that even though changes in planning for the conference were made in response to those allegations that it felt like a little strange that there wasn't mention of that situation from the stage or at least there wasn't in all the sessions that I attended and you know that was probably for legal reasons and very understandable position for uh, Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Boltz Weber to take her uh, very understandable um, that they wouldn't mention this but at the same time it did feel like a little bit of a disconnect in that we're talking throughout the conference about upholding the abused in general, uh, but not addressing this specific situation of alleged abuse, even though a lot of people at the conference, especially going past the people who are protesting, uh, we're, we're talking about it to each other. But I really, I don't have an answer of what would have been right to do and it just seems like a really tricky, messy situation, but something I thought uh, should be mentioned in connection with our recap of the conference. 
Um, but moving on, then I guess uh, we can each of us answer the question, why Christian for ourselves? So taking that premise of the conference, why are we Christians in the face of a history of oppression that the church has been involved with and the many flaws that the Christian church has today? Why do we claim that identity? And we can start with Kristen. Okay. Um, I don't think I've actually been asked this question before. Why are you a Christian? Um, however, a question I do hear pretty frequently is, when did you become a Christian? And uh, I think anybody who's been running around in evangelical circles long will, will hear that come across. And my standard answer when somebody asks, when did you become a Christian, is to say that I was baptized when I was three days old. Now, in case you were wondering, nobody who was asking that question is ever looking for that answer. But still, to some extent, you know, to some, to some extent, I'm yanking people's chains, I have to admit that. But not entirely, that, that I do think that's true, that I'm Christian because long before I ever could have done anything to seek for God, um, I was barely able to figure out this nursing thing yet. I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and God claimed me as God's own. Um, so that's part of the story. Uh, but then why do I continue to claim Christianity as part of my identity? And I appreciated a lot of the talks um, that, that had a lot of the presentations in, at the conference that had different uh, approaches to that. Um, and Jess Cast Keat was talking about how, uh, how Jesus offers life and offers life ab- abundantly. And I agree with that. I think that's true. Um, Nicole Flores was talking about how good, solid Christian theology is rooted in the deepest understanding of human dignity, as human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and are infinitely precious, no matter what. And I entirely agree with that. Um, But I also feel a little nervous about talking about um, being Christian because it's so because it's so helpful. Um, that I think all those are true, and I think all those are accurate and valuable. But it can sort of be putting the cart before the horse a little bit. And I would say, at the end of the day, um, I'm Christian because I have come to believe that the gospels are true, and and the word be, did become flesh and dwelt dwell among us uh, in the villages of Galilee 2,000 years ago, and that demands a response, and my response is, is continuing to be a Christian. Oh, thanks, Kristen. That was very beautiful, and I think a very honest response um, to this question of why you are a Christian. And uh, Victoria, what, how would you answer this question? So I'm going to be a, a bit of a copycat, uh, though I, I don't think I'm going to be as uh, as, as deep or, or eloquent as, as Kristen was, um, and, and start by talking about my family. Um, one of the things that I, I was really um, moved by, and kind of even more moved by the more I reflected on it, is um, Kristen mentioned me, Kim Court's um, family going to morning prayers every morning. And when she was talking about that, she talked about 
um, herself and her siblings um, sort of fading in and out of sleep while these rhythmic prayers were going on. And I, I thought about um, the place of that experience in, in my life, how many um, evenings I, I usually was for me I spent sort of wrapped in you know um my my mother's code or or my father's code or something similar um in a church pew because I just couldn't stay awake um and I, and I thought of um mornings later when I was a teenager um for a few years in high school uh my youth group had a weekly prayer breakfast um that was a, a really um great time of spiritual growth for me, not just because of the conversations I got to have with my youth group, but because um, they happened to be the same morning as my church's men's prayer breakfast. And so my father and I would leave uh, our house together and, uh, and go to our separate breakfasts, and then he would drive me to school. And uh, those mornings were so incredibly special to me because they were times uh, that he and I got to spend together, um, not just being alone together, which of course was was special in and of itself, but um, but I, I got to kind of be a part of his adult world, and um, and part of that belonging was uh, was theology and belief. We were both going to this place where we were learning and, and growing and, and reading the word and talking about it to people. And often on the way to school, he would ask me um, what my group had discussed, and I would tell him, and I would ask him questions um, about the Bible and about what he thought about the verses we had read. Um, and, and while my father and I um, don't share the exact same theology today, um, I, I definitely think that part of my answer to why Christian is, um, is because my father was an example to me of how to be one, um, to be honest, to have integrity, to, to definitely look out for, for the least of these, um, to, to know that, that Christ wants the last to be first. Um, my dad's a very generous person. Um, all those kinds of modeling... Um, I think were very, very important to me. And like I said, even though um, we don't subscribe to the exact same theology now, um, those roots and those examples that he gave me are certainly part of um, part of why I became a Christian. Um, why I'm still a Christian after sort of questioning and, and, and those theological changes and, and wondering about... Um, about ableism and about sexism and about racism, um, both within the church and without, um, I think really comes back to uh, my, my favorite quotation from the conference, which one of you already said, um, it, it wasn't always good news for me to have a body um, until I met good news that became a body. Uh, this idea that, that Christ um, chose to to be incarnated and to take on humanity and pain and suffering and to view things like poverty and inequality, um, that he made that active choice so that we could not be alone and also so that we could, you know, to, to use a kind of treacly phrase, so that we could pay it forward and so that we could be his hands and feet and show that love in the world. Um, that's why I'm a Christian, because I, I believe in the power of that sacrifice. And I 
believe that um, that all the times that I've been in physical pain and and you know hated my spastic twisted body um, are are for a holy purpose, even if I can't see them all the time. Like yeah, that's that's really profound. The power of God's sacrifice and the incarnation, the way that God shares in our sufferings. I think that is a part of why I would say I'm a Christian too. And um, I think that that was something running throughout the conference. And one reason why so many of the speakers' presentations at this conference resonated with me, um, because they talk about Christianity in terms similar to how I think about my Christianity. Um, so, of course, like Victoria, you mentioned, part of the, the premise of this conference was answering this question of why when the church is so broken and its history and its current presence is so deeply flawed and bound up in oppression, do we still call ourselves Christians? Um, and for me, in one way, of course, it's sort of like uh, what Alison Dillon Robinson said at the end of her sermon, like Victoria already mentioned, um, I just I am a Christian just because I choose to be. It's hard, and there's a lot that is this unfathomable mystery, but I choose it. And in another way, I can make that choice because I don't see Christianity as monolithic or the church as just this unitary structure um, and I'm pretty much going to say right now what I wrote on my blog about a year ago about why I identify as a Christian um, I see the church being made up of individuals each person attempting to follow Christ as best they can so there can be this difference between a Christian person and a Christian history of oppression and actually I think that sort of like Winnie Varghese was talking about, resistance to that oppression is a defining feature of Christianity. I like to think about Ursula K. Le Guin's classic short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. The story describes a seemingly utopian society, but it turns out, as often in science fiction, there's a twist. It's not utopian, really. It turns out um, that this, the harmony and comfort of that society is founded on the gruesome mistreatment of one naked, hungry child, a scapegoat for the whole society. Most people learning about the mistreatment of this naked, hungry child when they come of age is a kind of rite of passage in this society, uh, accept that mistreatment just as a fact of life. They stay in that comfortable culture. Um, but some people refuse to participate and they walk away from Omelas. They're the ones who walk away from Omelas. Now, some people would see leaving Christianity and as a whole and its involvement in oppression as walking away from Omelas. Um, and that's a valid way of looking at it. But instead, for me, I think that that turn away from Omelas is actually what characterizes Christianity. Because at its heart, Christianity is all about liberation and love. Because Christ isn't about accepting injustice or condoning oppression. 
um, Christ turns away from, the com from comfort to enter the wilderness. And not only that, he liberates, freeing the captives and feeding the hungry. Christ breaks chains and heals wounds and turns tables and harrows hell. And he accepts women and eunuchs, embraces outcasts, and bursts through boundaries. And he takes us to those margins there too, or meets us there. And there's a different kind of scapegoat at the center of Christianity, um, a, a, a sacrifice that's different from the, the sort made by this naked hungry child in Omelas, because in Christ's incarnation and suffering and death, we don't, just, we don't have this monument to pain or injustice that we just simply have to inspect, uh, have to accept. Um, we don't have Christ becoming a naked, hungry child just so that we can be united in this sort of complacent hammering of nails into his hands. Um, and he's not this unwilling prisoner who suffers so that we don't have to. Instead, like Victoria, you were saying, instead this, the, the sacrifice and the miracle of Christianity is that God saw us, the naked and hungry children, and God willingly became one of us. It's the incarnation God's embodiment, this miracle that God shares in our pain and all this terror and grit of humanity that's, that's at the heart of Christianity. God is the thirsty. God is the hungry. God enters into the sorrows of the outcasts and the griefs of broken humanity. And the reason for all this is love. That's the fundamental thing. That's the reason why I'm a Christian. Christianity is about a God who so loved the world that God didn't turn away from its suffering, but joined it. Christianity is about a Christ who breaks himself open to become bread and wine for the hungry. It's about a God who is love. And because of love, Christ shares in our pain in the daily sorrows of all these hurts that we deal to each other and shares in our deaths. And because of love, Christ shares with us comfort, joy, and resurrection. And because of love, Christ enters into communion with the oppressed and the oppressor, the weak and the powerful, the lost and the found. And it's because of love that we're all welcome to the Eucharist, to know God's love and suffering in our own bodies. So that's what Christianity is about to me. I want to follow the Christ of love and liberation. And even though I know I don't do that very well, I want to. And so I claim the term Christian. I feel like so, I should say amen there. <laughs> that was so powerful, Marie. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, thanks. Um, I guess uh, we've, we've all covered the points we wanted to talk about the conference and answered why Christian for ourselves. We can move on to the last part of the episode, um, the passing on, where we each give a recommendation to our listeners, and we can start with Kristen for that. Okay, uh, my recommendation is the blog called 10,000 Places, written by Jessica Kantrowitz. Um, the more literary-minded of us may recognize that as a, a reference to a poem by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, who was a, a Jesuit poet, um, English Jesuit poet in the 19th century. Woo, uh, love Hopkins, yay. Yay. Uh, she came, uh, Jessica came from a, a more conservative evangelical background and has a, a Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary up here in Boston. Um, in recent years, she's been 
she's been on something of a really interesting faith journey, exploring more contemplative approaches to faith. And she blogs about that, the children she nannies for, and just about anything else that comes to mind. Um, some of us may actually be at least a little bit familiar with this already, because um, one of her posts went viral this spring. Um, it was in the midst of all the uh, hubbub about uh, religious liberty and um, cake bakers and should they have to, or, or should they be exempt from non-discrimination laws and, and in, in dealing with uh, conscience objections to same-sex weddings and things like that. Anyway, she wrote, wrote a post uh, called Bake for Them Too, which went viral, and all of a sudden her little blog, which had been used to getting about 100 hits per post, that one literally got a million. Um, and so some people may have, may have come across that as it got reposted everywhere. But then after that chaos settled down, uh, things have gone more or less back to normal. But there is more good stuff to be found on the rest of the blog. So check out 10,000places.org. Thanks, Kristen. That sounds like some really interesting content on that blog. Uh, Victoria, what do you have for us? Uh, I have two things, um, one that is, is slightly more concrete than the other. Um, first, I'm going to recommend the music of Rachel Kurtz, who, uh, who led singing at the conference. Um, I purchased her most recent album, 2012's Broken and Low Down, um, which contains um, some of the original liturgy she wrote that she sung at the conference. I also bought a couple of songs from a couple of previous albums. Um, one of them was her version of Balm of Gilead, which just, uh, to, to say it touched me um, at the conference, um, would would be an, an extreme understatement. Um, I, I've already said how I... Um, I, I had a, a very kind of deep um, reflecting experience on um, pain and physicality and embodiment and, and my, um, my experience as a person with a disability while I was there. And the singing of that song together, uh, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole and there is a balm in Gilead to save the sin-sick soul. This idea of, of Christ healing our bodies, um, that song really touched me, so... Uh, check out Rachel Kurtz's music. It's really wonderful and soulful and worshipful, and I love it. And my second recommendation um, is one that I have not yet followed myself, but want to, um, and that's uh, to check out a, a congregation or a body of Christ that is different from your own. Um, one of the women who spoke at the conference that we haven't really talked about much yet is uh, Jody Hogue, who is the pastor of Humble Walk Congregation in St. Paul. Um, if you remember our previous episode, we talked about um, Nadia Bolsweber speaking to a friend of hers who was also a pastor and asking um, if anybody had ever messed up her congregation's weird um, and and that pastor said, you know, may, maybe you should maybe you should rethink what um, what weird is here, and maybe you should you should serve everyone who's coming. Um, that pastor was Jody Hogue, um, and and she talked a lot at the conference about her congregation and about how they work, about how they 
um, literally let the little children lead them. They include kids in their prayers to the people in their structure um, of the liturgy. They let them have a voice in the congregation. Um, and also they make a point of going out into the community and, and performing um, kind of churchy things. They do this monthly gathering at a bar called Beer and Hymns, which is, I presume, exactly what it sounds like. You drink beer and you sing hymns in a bar. Um, so I'm really intrigued by this congregation. Um, they're in St. Paul. They're they're not super far away from me. Um, I I really felt um, I, a kind of connection to Jody while she was speaking, and I'd really like to go. Um, not not that I want to leave the congregation that I'm a member of that I that I really deeply love, um, but that congregation, the one that I, I am a part of, um, is doing a study right now on intergenerational Christianity and how we sort of relate to people younger and older than us. So, um, because of what Jody said about how they incorporate children and how they incorporate community, um, I'm really interested to see what Humble Walk is like, and I'd like to go to maybe one of their services or one of their events. So that's my recommendation. Check out a congregation different from yours. And uh, if I if I do go, I'll, I'll report back and tell you guys what it was like. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. A congregation different from your own. Good thing to experience. Good thing to find. Um, I'm going to recommend two things as well. One is a blog post that was pointed out to me by another of our podcast panelists, Nora Bonner, who also got to attend the conference. Um, it's a post by Emily Swan at readthespirit.com talking about her experience at the conference and especially about how the conference highlighted marginalized voices, so a lot of what we've been talking about here today. Um, and one, one thing I also like that she talks about is um, she talks about Emily Scott playing the trombone on Saturday morning as the sign of the trombone, um, which is just a great phrase. And um, I don't know if either of you were particularly moved at that moment when Emily came out with the trombone on Saturday morning, but that in addition to Eucharist, I think was the most cheerful moment of the conference for a lot of people because on the previous day, uh, Emily Scott's presentation um, had a large part of it had talked about how she'd sort of lost her voice as represented by the trombone, had it sort of um, taken from her by the rigidity of the teacher's teaching music in the classical tradition and having at one point her body sort of forcibly restrained by a teacher to get her to perform in a more accepted manner on the trombone. So the trombone was a symbol of her voice as a female pastor as well. Um, so when she came out with a trombone on Saturday morning, everybody saw this, the sign of the trombone as just this very moving sort of image of how our voices are all acceptable to God. Our manner of expression has a place in the church. Um, so that was why a lot of people had <laughs> were crying then. And it goes along, too, with uh, what Victoria was saying earlier about this, this motif of uh, singing and music that ran throughout the conference, which um, was something that Tiffany... Tiffany Thomas's presentation at the conference was about, in large part, this music as a symbol of communal expression in the church and as 
of individual expression. One thing she said throughout her presentation was the answer, brothers and sisters, is in the music. Um, so with the sign of trumb the trombone, we had a little bit of an answer in the music there. Um, that's something that Emily Swan talks about in her post. Um, I think I'll also recommend a book that I don't remember if I've ever recommended on the podcast before. I might have. It's worth recommending again if I did already. Um, a book by Ken Wilson on LGBT inclusion in the church. It's titled A Letter to My Congregation. Um, and it talks about the third way approach in which a church is sort of welcoming and affirming to LGBT people in practice, but doesn't demand like universal sort of affirmation from every member of the congregation. So you're allowed to fully participate in the church if your conscience allows, calls you to dissent from affirming LGBT people. Um, and all are welcome at the table, no matter what orientation or opinion under this uh, third way approach. So that's worth reading in terms of uh, what we've been talking about. Uh, LGBT inclusion at the conference. So thank you, Victoria and Kristen, for uh, your wonderful words today. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do that on our Facebook page or at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, for show notes for this and other episodes, you can check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Slipik is our publishing liaison, and Sway Jimenez is our intern. So for Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Kristen Slipik, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in next time for an episode on gendered mourning. Until then, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things love.